had a thought about black people. You know how there's the old adage that black don't crack, referring to how so many black people just age so gracefully? I was thinking about how miraculous that is, that we often age as gracefully as we do. Because based on the experience of being black in America, black folks really should be aging in dog years. All of us should actually look three times our age. And that brings me to the word of the week, which is exhaustion. I don't know about y'all, but I'm tired. I'm worn out emotionally, sometimes even physically. That's why I can completely understand why NBA players and many others in the sports world decided to take a mental health day from playing their respective sports after seeing Jacob Blake, a 29-year-old black man in Kenosha, Wisconsin, shot in the back seven times by the police in front of his three children. Black people, we sick of this shit. And this goes well beyond Jacob Blake. We're tired of the police killing us. We're tired of disproportionately dying from COVID-19 because once white folks figured out we were the ones getting the worst of it, reopening the country safely became a low priority. We're tired of black women being two and a half times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. We're tired of a typical white family's net worth being 10 times greater than a black family's. We're tired of underfunded schools, inadequate housing, mass incarceration, and poor health care. White people say all the time how much they're sick of talking about race. They're tired of black lives matter. They don't want to hear about how they've been complicit in systematic oppression. Well, if white people are tired of talking about racism, imagine how tired we are of experiencing it. And that's why the word of the week is exhaustion. Now, despite my black tiredness, I am really, really, really excited about today's podcast guest. He's a legend, period, point blank. For decades, he was the voice telling us what was going on, how to make sense of things. He was the face of the evening news, and later on, he served as America's checks and balances as the face of 60 Minutes. He has interviewed foreign leaders, dignitaries, presidents, civil rights icons, celebrities. He has seen this country in its most daring moments and also at its worst moments. I'm pleased to welcome the one and only Dan Rather. Now, a brief note to keep in mind as you listen to this podcast, we did have some technical difficulties, so we had to do this one by phone. But not to worry, that will not take away from your enjoyment one bit. You're going to get all this knowledge. Dan Rather, up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. I've been wanting to be a journalist since I was in the 10th grade. It's the only thing that I've ever wanted to do. Um, I'm really awful at math. So really, my options were limited to begin with. So uh, for a lot of us who grew up watching the evening news, um, one of the most trusted voices in America was you, Dan. And um, I can't wait to tell my mother that I did this interview because she grew up watching you. Uh, my grandmother, who's no longer living, grew up watching you. I grew up watching you. And so um, you just became this kind of trusted voice in America. So it is my honor and pleasure to welcome you to this podcast because, uh, you know, you're one of the greatest journalists in history, top five, and you're not five. So <laughs> thank you for joining the program. Well, listen, I really appreciate that, Jamel. Thank you very much. First of all, I hope you'll give my regards and my uh, appreciation to your mother. Secondly, uh, I really appreciate your kind words about my work. Uh, I don't consider myself worthy completely of that, but I am deeply appreciative. But, but I think it's very important. It's always important to me that people that I talk with, and including the audience that listens sometimes, is that you know I'm basically a reporter who got lucky, very, very lucky. Uh, you know, I'm not an expert on any damn thing. Uh, I'm not a philosopher. I'd like to be a historian, but I'm not. I'm basically a reporter who got lucky. Well, but we're seeing a different, for those of us who grew up watching you, I should say, that we're seeing a, a much different side of you now in the age of social media um, than I think the the Dan Rather, a, a lot of us uh, certainly grew up with it. Um, your embrace, how you've embraced social media is a real 
testament to um, not just you and, and, and wanting to evolve, but kind of how this business is, has had to evolve. I mean, you have two and a half million uh, followers on Facebook, um, on Twitter. Uh, you have right now, let's, let's, uh, let's do a quick check to see how many followers you have on Twitter. I'm, I know you have quite a few because I follow you on Twitter. Not that that's the benchmark, but you have like a million followers on Twitter as well. What was it that made you embrace social media the way that you have? Young people that I worked with, uh, when I left CBS News and uh, went on my own, so to speak, uh, and formed a company called News and Guts, I worked with a small group of people. Uh, they were overwhelmingly people in their 20s and uh, early to mid-30s. Uh, when the social media began to rise, in popularity, I said to myself, I was born too young for these social media platforms such as Twitter, Facebook, uh, and frankly had very little interest in it, I'm ashamed to say. But younger members of my staff basically came to me and said, Dan, you know, first of all, if you want to remain relevant, even on the fringes, even a small amount, it's not an option. You have to be on social media in, in the new age, in the 21st century, where we are now. Frankly, the first time they told me that, I said, well, thank you very much, but I, I don't think there's something I want to take on. They came back to me again and urged me to get into social media. So the answer to your question, I came to the social media revolution, if you will, mostly because younger members of uh, my team of people I worked with and some members of my own family, uh, my daughter and my grandsons, had told me that uh, I had better either get with it or just uh, go into another line of work. Uh, I've been a, a surprised, almost astounded would be uh, the proper word, uh, at the reaction. When you talk about on Facebook uh, having two and a half million uh, followers roughly, on Twitter, over a million. Uh, these, for me, for me, are staggering figures. There's certainly a lot of people who have much larger audiences, but for at this age and stage of my life, to be able to uh, speak to and present myself and my work to that many people uh, is an immense blessing. I don't profess to understand it, but I certainly am grateful for it. Well, I mean, I would have to say, I think because people have for a long time looked at you as such a trusted voice that you going to the social media platform was a natural fit because in an age of journalism that we're in, where I think people are very much thirsting for trusted sources or or voices that they feel like have the credibility to speak to what's happening now. I'm not really surprised in that context that you have found such a enormous um, social media following. Um, I, I do want to spend some time talking about that, but I really want to dive in first into what we're seeing from journalism today. You've covered many presidents. You've covered world leaders. What is it about the age of covering Donald Trump that seems to have journalists completely befuddled and on their heels? Where is American journalism failing in covering this president? Well, what a good question, and I'm going to try to answer it, Jamel, but I, I do want to underscore, I'm not sure that I have the answers, because I, I ask myself this very question pretty often. But let me begin by saying that there's never been a president anywhere near like Donald Trump. One could say in a soft voice, thank God, and whatever forces, other forces there may be that we haven't. But I think for one thing is that Donald Trump understood uh, the power and reach of social media, the full power and reach of it, before most people in journalism and American journalism as a whole um, seized on that. Keep in mind that he is our first Twitter president. Uh, yes, it's true that Barack Obama may have done some, but in the same way that John Kennedy was really our first television president, the first president who understood how to use this new medium uh, to be to persuade people. So Donald Trump was so far ahead of American journalists in general 
and the major journalistic institutions, including the major name television networks and the bigger newspapers, in understanding how to use social media. So that's one big reason that the press has been, and I, I like your words, I think it's true, that journalism and journalists, including this one, have been too much befuddled and back on their heels and have stayed that way for too long. Uh, but President Trump, he, uh, he also uh, uh, understands that with the power of the presidency, the uh, 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 and the leverage of Twitter hooked to the power of the presidency gives him an opportunity to convince a lot of people of his narrative, whatever his narrative is on any given day, whether it's true or not, and frequently it is not true, frequently it is shot full of lies, but he, he understands that what what the combined power of the presidency and the new social media gives him. And journalists in general, and again, including this one, have to this day not quite caught up to that. Uh, there is a tendency in journalism, and in some ways it's a good tendency, to want to do things the old way, to want to do things the traditional way. This is, when meeting what Donald Trump has put forward, this is not enough. It is not nearly enough. Now, you know, I am encouraged by what's happened with journalism in the more recent uh, months and even, I would say, the last year, year and a half, uh, that there have been some strides made in understanding that, for, for example, that when President Trump appears on television, you don't absolutely have to carry every time he walks out and has something self-serving to say. Uh, increasingly, television networks, for example, may carry the top of something to see what it's about. And when he goes into self-serving, what I would call sheer outright propaganda, cut away from it and do what journalists are supposed to do, which is to edit the material to say what's the news in here, if there's any news in it, report the news, if the rest of it is just, as I call it, self-serving political propaganda, uh, then let it drop by the wayside. But uh, President Trump, uh, for better or for worse, and I would argue for worse, has affected the whole direction of American journalism uh, over the three and a half years he's been in office. And my guess is, I'm sorry to say, that however long he's in office, that the effects of this will be felt far into the future. Now, it's interesting that you say that we haven't seen a president uh, quite like Trump. I agree with that, uh, especially given um, where technology is today. However, you did cover the president that people believe is a a fairly close um you know, simile. I mean, you can speak to that more than I can. You covered Richard Nixon, and there's often comparisons made between the two. Um, do you feel as if these presidencies are in any way similar in terms of what the impact on American journalism or and just in the nature of how they operated? Or um, is that a misnomer by saying that these two presidents are alike? No, uh, there are definitely similarities between the presidency of Donald Trump and that of Richard Nixon. Uh, however, it, uh, I caution against making too close a, a parallel between the two. This is a different time. We are a different country in many ways. And so I, I will address what I consider to be the similarities between the two. But I do want folks to keep in mind that it's been a long time since Richard Nixon. A lot of things have happened in the country, just to name one, that the country demographically has become so much more diverse in the time between Richard Nixon leaving office in 1974 and Donald Trump coming to office in 2016. Uh, the similarities are that President Richard Nixon, like Donald Trump, uh, believes strongly in that two things would get him into office and keep him into office. 
And among those two things were to run a, a very strong uh, uh, law and order campaign to play on people's racial fears, to use what were euphemistically called various dog whistles to signal of the white majority uh, that minorities, and particularly the African-American minority in the country, were threats. So Richard Nixon, in his time, he came to the presidency in 1968, and he, he ran uh, again in 1972 on a basic, I will protect you message to the white majority in the country. The second thing was an unrelenting attack on the press. Now, so those are similarities with Trump. Now, what Richard Nixon preferred to have the unrelenting attacks on the press not come out so much out of his mouth that he preferred to have it done by surrogates, such as his eventually disgraced and res had to resign Vice President Spiro Agnew. Whereas Donald Trump uh, carries the, the burden himself of attacking individual reporters, uh, various American journalism institutions, and the whole institution of the press. Another difference, I mean, there, we can go over a long line of, of things here, uh, is that Richard Nixon, who, let's remember, he was forced to resign from office because he, the president, ran a widespread criminal conspiracy, which we call for shorthand Watergate. However, Richard Nixon, he believed in the institutions of government. For example, he believed in the Supreme Court. And, and tough as they were to, to, for him to digest, when the Supreme Court ruled, uh, he accepted it. The great difference with Trump. Donald Trump does not basically believe in the institutions of the United States. He's shown it time and again. He's attacked every institution. He's attacked both houses of Congress, along with individual congressmen. He's attacked the judiciary. His attacks on, on judges are unprecedented for an American president. And so that's a big difference that Richard Nixon, in his gut, in deep down within himself, believed in such American concepts as the separation of powers. And he believed in American institutions. Donald Trump has demonstrated time and time again uh, by what he said and by his deeds that he does not. And that's a big difference. Now, you um, you had an interesting relationship with uh, with Richard Nixon. Not sure if interesting is, is probably the appropriate word. Uh, describe what it was like covering him. Well, first of all, the size of the White House press corps had grown tremendously in the wake of the assassination of President Kennedy. And so the, the White House press corps and the president general that covered Richard Nixon was much larger than had been the case as even as recently as the Kennedy administration before him. However, it was not nearly as large as the White House press corps is today. Uh, that's, that's one difference. The second difference is Richard Nixon he did not like to come onto any stage or into any situation that he didn't think he could control. Therefore, uh, access to the president was, by Donald Trump's standards, extremely limited. Yes, we did see President Nixon, if you were a White House correspondent, as I was during those days, you might see President Nixon in person in the, in the Oval Office or in the Rose Garden, you know, maybe once every week or 10 days. Uh, so a big difference was with Donald Trump that uh, for better and for worse, I would argue sometimes it's one way, sometimes another, that the access that the press has to Donald Trump uh, is far, far greater than any of us had with, uh, with Richard Nixon. President Nixon was a, a, a smart, well-read, well-educated person. Now, you can say, well, if he was all that, why, why and how did he make the big mistakes he made? And that's a fair question. But uh, he had read history. He knew history. 
he particularly knew uh, a lot about foreign policy and foreign relations, keeping in mind he had been a congressman, he'd been a senator, he'd been a two-term vice president. He knew a lot about international and domestic policy. Whereas with President Trump, it's increasingly apparent uh, that he knows little of anything about uh, history. Uh, he, he, he came to office knowing practically nothing about international affairs or foreign affairs. Another big difference is, remember, when Richard Nixon was president, there were no cell phones. Cable television did not exist. The power of the press was still pretty evenly dis distributed between uh, daily newspapers and uh, network newscasts. Social media did not exist, no Twitter, no Facebook, none of that. So when we make comparisons with the Nixon uh, time, as I say, there are some legitimate comparisons to be made, and there is a, a line running from the Nixon presidency to the Trump presidency, uh, but it, it's a mistake to overemphasize it because it's such a different time. Yeah, no, and and in a weird way, um, we're actually insulting Nixon by comparing him to Trump because of what you said is that uh, I've often made this observation and I say it partly in jest and partly because I think it's true is like, I don't think Donald Trump knew the three branches of government, honestly, like, I don't even think he knew basic things about how our government operates. You can tell that by what he says and what he thinks a president has authority over. Whereas, you know, Nixon was at least schooled on not just how the government operated. As you said, he believed in the actual um, institutions. Um, and yeah, I mean, you're, as they say, comparison um, is the, uh, the thief of joy. So <laughs> I do understand that we have to be careful with that, but I think people more or less probably looked at it from a power standpoint and an authoritarian kind of attitude. Uh, another thing that, you know, you're a great person to talk to about in terms of comparing um, errors is, you know, you see right now there's a lot of unrest in the country, a lot of protesting that's going on, all stemming from the issue of police brutality because of some of the atrocities that we have witnessed in recent months. Many people have tried to say in this moment that we're experiencing some version of what the civil rights movement was like as someone who actually covered the civil rights movement. Do you see connective tissue there and um, maybe give everybody some idea of what it was like to cover and witness that movement in real time? Well, there is a good deal of what you call, and I like the phrase, connective tissue. But keep in mind that what happened in the 1960s, what we now call the civil rights movement, had begun together some momentum in the very late 1950s. But in the early 1960s, under primarily the leadership of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, but there were others, the civil rights movement began to, to, to really get a foothold, if you will. There were mass demonstrations. It was a, 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 a almost total commitment to nonviolent demonstrations. And as I hope is well known, Dr. King was a, a, a great believer in it's got to be nonviolent. We've got to keep keep it nonviolent. But here's the point: that for a long time, it, it it appeared that what we call the civil rights movement was not going to affect very much; that it wasn't going to result in any progress. But then, and I would argue primarily because television. Keep in mind, in the early '60s. This was the first time that most Americans, even those at the low end of the socioeconomic scale, had television. At any rate, partly because of television's coverage. But the, the demonstrations in 1960, 1961, 62, 63, did produce uh, the civil rights legislation, the landmark legislation of the mid-1960s. 64, 65 primarily. Uh, they, this didn't solve all the problems by any stretch of imagination, but there was, and this is the point, it was a direct relationship between the nonviolent demonstrations and their persistence in asking for justice, yea, demanding justice, that some justice resulted. Voting Rights Act, Open Housing Act, those kinds of things resulted.
Now, to those who are demonstrating the streets today and saying, well, gosh, can anything come of this? I think it could take some heart from that history of the civil rights movement of the early to mid-1960s. I will say that by the later stages of, of the 1960s, partly because of complications of the Vietnam War, but not entirely due to that, that things took, a, 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 in my opinion, a wrong turn. That the country's uh, emphasis on let's do something about civil rights was actually do something began to fade. A lot of reasons for that, as I say, the, the controversy with the Vietnam War was part of it. But by the time we got to the 1968 presidential campaign, and this may interest people because we are coming up to a presidential campaign in 2020, of course, that Richard Nixon basically, he made part of his campaign, a message was, we've come too far too fast with these civil rights things. All of this needs to be slowed down. And he made, was making direct appeal to what was left of the of the racist civil structure, particularly in deep southern states, former members of the Confederacy. And with the advent of the Nixon presidency in 68, uh, advances in civil rights legislation and, and general civil rights decisions began to, to, to fade as the Nixon administration uh, rose in, in power. Um, you were somebody who had the opportunity um, to speak with uh, Dr. King, if I'm not mistaken. What was he like? I did. Uh, I, I was honored and it was a privilege to do so. Uh, what he was like, uh, first of all, he wasn't all that fond of, of people who were oppressed. He was always uh, wanting to keep the press at arm's length. On the one hand, uh, his staff... Uh, including John Lewis and some other people who are still alive today, was they were in the process of convincing him that the movement needed press coverage. But at any rate, what he was like in person, uh, he had this, this, what I called in written, he had a quiet at the center. Uh, you know, he was had a powerful voice, a very strong, we're talking now about his voice quality, not to mention his eloquence as a speaker. Uh, but you couldn't be in his presence and not be impressed. First of all, that the, the more confusing things got around him, the more chaotic things were around him. And there were a lot of chaotic days. Sometimes when you talk to him, it was all hell breaking loose outside. Uh, he seemed to, to get quieter and quieter at his core. Anytime things began to get, um, as I say, chaotic, confusing, dysfunctional around him. Uh, he had uh, a, a way of, uh, he looked people in the eye. He was one of those people who had trained himself or just naturally strongly looked in the eye, strong handshake. But he was, uh, generally speaking, very, uh, very cautious around the press, not just myself, but almost any reporter who covered him at the time would say that. Uh, the other thing that you can't talk about Dr. Martin Luther King and not mention was his courage. Uh, you know, you can like Dr. King or not like Dr. King, uh, you, you, but this this guy had guts. In, in, in this, whatever is the strongest way to put it, because he walked and he knew it every day. He walked moment to moment on the razor's edge of lethal danger. But he knew that assassination could happen at any time and probably would happen sometime. But he was able to put that aside and go on and appear in public, preach, my, what a mighty preacher, uh, and, and lead the movement knowing that at any moment uh, that Someone could assassinate him, which they eventually did. Well, that's the um, part that I think I, uh, a lot of people try to bring up whenever we, you know, talk about Dr. Martin Luther King and, uh, you know, this idea about being on the right side of history. Uh, since you 
you know, you were there and you were in the in the thick of it in terms of, of covering it. Um, explain to people what was the popular sentiment about Dr. King during that time where he was advocating for civil rights and nonviolence. How did people in this country feel about him? Well, obviously, it's difficult to, to to generalize about a big continental country such as our own. But uh, the record will show, and it was very clear, when Dr. King started with the civil rights movement, first of all, uh, he was ignored, virtually uh, uh, ignored throughout the, the South, but also in other parts of the country. Newspapers didn't co- cover him. Television didn't cover him. It was uh, sort of, you know, this guy doesn't exist by trying to create a, a, a feeling about him. Uh, just if, if we ignore him, he will eventually go away because he won't have the effect. Then as slowly, and again, I come back, television, the fact that television began to cover the civil rights movement, and not because I was there, but CBS News was among the first. When we were trying to cover Dr. King, we were regularly called the colored broadcasting system, CBS, or the communist broadcasting system. There was, in in what I would call Deep Dixie, there was, I wouldn't say it was universal, but there was a widespread feeling that King probably was a communist, which, by the way, he certainly was not, and there's no empirical evidence of any kind that he ever was. But it was use of the big lie on him. Uh, that people tend to forget that at that time in the South, Ku Klux Klan meetings were still uh, fairly prevalent. I know when I first began covering Dr. King in the early stages of 1962, I think I saw three Klan rallies in the first two or three weeks, certainly the first month and month and a half. Uh, and the, the violence perpetrated on African-Americans in the Deep South during that period, including many followers of Dr. King. Uh, There were a lot of them. They were real. They were not imagined. But the American public as a whole was slow to come to the realization of what the reality for uh, African-Americans, particularly African-Americans, in the South. But it was while the violence was worst in the deep south there's no getting around it that the country as a whole uh, had a deep and abiding prejudice against uh, people of color now that began to change over to a certain degree over a period of time but it did take five or six years before dr king's work and the demonstrations began to have the result of getting civil rights legislation it must have been wild for you to see how something that was so embedded made that kind of progress. And probably, I'm sure, I don't know if it ever ran across your mind when you, you know, were covering, uh, you know, him or the movement itself, that one day that he would be considered to be arguably our greatest humanitarian. I mean, did you ever think then when you were, um, you know, covering him and, and relaying all this for the American public to digest that you were watching something that, was going to be a massively historical shift into how we operated as a country. Over a period of time, I did begin to think that way. Keep in mind that uh, I was born and grew up in Texas at a time when Texas had institutionalized racism uh, of a very uh, deep and, and dangerous sort and had had for a long time. You might want to argue that it wasn't as bad as, say, deep Mississippi, Alabama, or South Carolina, but it was a staunchly segregated society of uh, racists in in so many ways. Uh, But I came out of that environment, and when I was um, assigned to cover Dr. King and, and the civil rights movement, quite frankly, in the beginning, I didn't quite know what to make of it. Much of it was a shock to me. You could say, well, if you grew up in Texas, it should have been a shock, but I can tell you that I had never seen the kind of open uh, violence against individual blacks, black families, 
and for that matter, black organizations that I was face to face with. So uh, I have said before, and I've said many times because it's true, that covering Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement changed me as a person and as a professional. And yes, as the months and years went by of covering him, I was aware this is a historic figure. But um, the counter to that is that, you know, we reporters, um, sometimes we get together after midnight and maybe over an adult beverage and talk about the future of the civil rights movement things. And one of the questions we frequently ask ourselves, well, do you think you'll ever see a black mayor of Atlanta? And I would say overwhelmingly, most reporters covering the beat thought not in my, our lifetime. Well, do you think you might see a governor of, of one of the deep South states? No, probably not in our lifetime. And in terms of having a, a, a person of color be president of the United States, uh, neither I nor any other journalist I knew covering the beat thought we were going to see that in our lifetimes, and maybe it would never happen. So, you know, but as as far as Dr. King was concerned, that uh, I did come to, to believe, yea, to know that he would be a historical figure. I never reached the point until many years later that I began to believe that any person of color could ascend to the president of the United States, never mind win a presidential election, but then win re-election as President Obama did uh, in the early part of the 21st century. None of us could foresee that at the time. And then, you know, you have to tell the truth. If there's any journalists getting together after midnight, it is not a adult beverage. It is adult beverages, plural. (laughs) (laughs) It is many. (laughs) You already know we have a special kind of liver in this profession. (laughs) That's just the way that we do. Um, All right. Going to take a really brief break. Um, because I have some fun questions for you, Dan, rather. You always get asked very serious questions. It's hard not to um, hear the history of what you've covered, and, and I'm so fascinated by that part. But I do have some fun questions, especially since um, I've done an intense deep dive into your social media feeds to find some controversial takes that you have about food that we're going we're gonna to have to talk about um, on the other side of this break. So we'll be right back more with Dan Rather. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We were talking about Dr. King, um, you know, before the break. And, uh, you know, you were a journalist when he was assassinated, when President Kennedy was assassinated, when Bobby Kennedy uh, was assassinated as well. During that period of, uh, you know, we describe what we're seeing now as unrest. I don't know how to describe what that might have felt like covering as a journalist and then to lead right into a war. Um, What can you tell us about what that time was like for you um, covering all these historic and tragic things at the same time as the country is trying to move forward and be a different type of country than what had been previously witnessed? Well, much has been uh, written and said about uh, the 60s and particularly 1968 when in rapid succession we had uh, the assassination of uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and the assassination of Robert Kennedy. It was inescapable at the time that this was a very dangerous time for the country. There were many people who were saying uh, during much of the 60s, but particularly the, the year 1968, the time we got to that, there were many people saying, listen, you know, the country's coming apart at the seams. The center won't hold. The center isn't holding. The country's coming apart. The country's going to hell in a hack. 
the racial divisions in the country, for one thing, have reached a point of, of no return. All of those things were among popular statements and, and thoughts. Uh, and as a reporter covering it, you had to say to yourself, you know, is any of that true? I will say, and maybe partly because I, I had covered the war in Vietnam in the mid uh, 1965 and 1966. I had a frame of reference for the war, which was up close and personal that I had been a combat correspondent during that time. And that, you know, when the demonstrations were anti-war demonstrations, which by the way, those demonstrations are overwhelmingly white. There was, there was not a, a lot of uh, diversity. Uh, in the anti-war demonstrations. But by the time we reached the point where we had actual riots uh, in the wake of Dr. King's assassination, for example, again, the people in the streets, uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, diversity uh, there either. And one big difference between what we're seeing in the streets today and what we saw in the tumultuous year of 1968 uh, and to, for that matter, somewhat before then, was that it, what's happening in the streets now, there's tremendous diversity, not only racial, but uh, gender, uh, age. These demonstrations, the ones here in 2020, are, are tremendously more diverse than anything that was happening in, in, in 1968. And the assassination of Dr. King and the resulting riots, and they were riots in big cities like Detroit and Los Angeles, to name just two, gave rise to a, a Richard Nixon saying to himself, this is good news for me and my party, because for one thing, it will make many white people afraid, and it will anger and incense uh, uh, other whites. And that can be exploited in the presidential campaign of 68. And indeed, he did exploit it. Uh, that I myself, during 1968, I, I did not subscribe to the idea that the country uh, was going to hell in a hack. Uh, I saw it as you know, part of what I call the dance of democracy. Is it um, difficult for you to look at where network news has gone and I would imagine somebody like you who anchored the evening news for as long as you did when it meant a little something different than that this some of this what we're seeing in broadcast news is it hard for you to watch because it's changed just so dramatically um from when you know you uh, were anchoring well, the news I'm still very much interested you know I'm, I'm nearly all news all the time I watch try to watch everything some of everything and and I admire many of the people who are working in news these days. But in answer to your question, what's difficult for me and what is, well, painful might be too strong of a word, but then again, maybe not, is that what's happened particularly to many of the large um, journalistic institutions, uh, and this is especially true of television, including cable television, is that the owners of the major institutions of journalism, particularly those in television, no longer see the journalistic operations as a public service, which was the case for much of my earlier career, that the owners of CBS, NBC, ABC, they didn't look upon news as a profit center. They looked upon it as a public service. Uh, that's no longer true, as we've had constant media consolidation, large companies absorbing other companies. Uh, but the whole sense of news as a public service has just about been squeezed out of it uh, as far as the ownership of these major journalism institutions are concerned. Obviously, there are some uh, exceptions. Washington Post, New York Times, I would mention for two. But the idea, particularly in television, any form of television news, that is a public service is not in the minds of the ownership. The people who are doing the actual work are still uh, inspired and have very high ethical standards. But for the people who own these uh, operations, it's all about money. It's nothing about public service. 
And that I really do lament and regret. I mean, thinking about, you know, the evolution of this business into that. I mean, I, I've said similar things before that this is truly corporate media in um, so many different respects. I mean, I came in from a newspaper world and got into television and in newspapers that was uh, at first all of the newspapers or at least many of them, um, the local papers, they were family owned companies. And then that slowly started to change until they became part of of larger corporate media. They consolidated. And so you have, you know, a handful of of corporations that own all the media uh, in our country. Um, with that in mind, I mean, a free press exists on paper, but does it really exist when you think about how the business structure of media has well, changed? Well, it's a fair question. And the answer is we should be asking ourselves that question regularly because something you said is very important. And I do find that a lot of people, I wouldn't say most people, have no, they don't have it in context that competition at the upper levels of journalism in the biggest journalism operations uh, has been squeezed out of it. No more than six, my count is four, but no more than six large corporations control no less than 80 to 85% of the true national distribution of news. That is not healthy. It's not healthy for journalism. It's not healthy for the country. And rather than that declining, as you point out, and by the way, I also came out of newspapering and wire service into first radio and television, that there's been a collapse of, of local newspapers uh, that I grew up in Houston at the time. We had three daily newspapers, the Houston Chronicle, Houston Post, Houston Press. Now there's, uh, there's one newspaper, uh, and the disappearance of local news coverage uh, is devastating uh, for us in, in many ways, not the least of which is that, for example, with state legislatures, state the coverage, the news coverage of state legislatures today is at an almost modern all-time low. And when you don't have reporters around a place like the state, uh, state legislature, corruption has a feast. And we all know that that's true. And, but there's very little coverage of, of state government now. There are some exceptions, but in the main, very little coverage. That's just one example how the collapse of, of local and regional newspapers uh, is, I don't think it's too strong to say, it's a threat to our democracy. And we should spend a lot of time thinking about it and see what we can do to turn it around. Yeah, and this is where Trump's attacks on the press are really dangerous and his narrative and messaging about fake news and enemy of the state, uh, why that is so dangerous. Because um, as I often say to people on social media, who's who's minding the store? When If people really thought about how much journalism has improved their lives and what they wouldn't know if it weren't for professional journalists holding those in power accountable it would be very scary. And as you said, uh, corruption often has a feast when journalists aren't somewhere holding folks accountable. Um, what would you tell uh, a broadcast journalist today? I mean, I know that's kind of a tough question because hell, when I'm asked by younger journalists, I don't know what to tell them because <laughs> I was like my path. In, I don't. I mean, my path into broadcast wasn't as straightforward. Uh, you started as you because I believe you started at, at the Associated Press and, and came through. Yeah, it came through that way. Um, you know, I, I started in newspapers and when I got to ESPN, I was hired as a writer and I was reluctantly drug into television and so um, I don't even know how to tell people, you know, what to I can tell them some core principles. But, you know, I, today's journalism has changed so much, even from the time that I was in it, that I feel like anything I tell them is obsolete. All that being said, I'm going to ask you to do what I hate to do and, and, <laughs> and, and ask you if you have any thoughts that you would share with, you know, today's journalists about how to approach the job. Well, I'm a bad one to ask for. Uh, advice, I think, but in, in an effort to respond to the question, I would just maybe just suggest softly, don't lose your idealism. That most people who get into journalism, overwhelmingly, they get in with an idealistic view of, I want to 
being an honest broker of information. I want to help people get the truth or as close to the truth as humanly possible. Um, and it's, it's, it, journalism's tough. It's a very tough profession. I wouldn't say the toughest. There are plenty of others. Being a doctor is a tough profession, but it's tough. It's tough to make it. And it, it's very easy to get the idealism drained out of you or kicked out of you fairly early. So I would just say as a soft voice, you know, don't forget why you got into journalism. Strive, always strive to match your idealism to your work. And I guess the other thing I would say, if I thought about it, I might not, but if I didn't think very long, I would say, don't let them scare you, whoever them are. Don't let the mayor scare you. Don't let the general manager of the radio or television station scare you. Um, you have to be smart about things and you're going to have to do things you don't want to do, but don't let them scare you. And the third thing would be um, always know where you stand. Know what you will do and what you won't do. Because if you don't have that in mind, almost moment by moment, you may get used to things and you have to be careful what you get used to because you can get used to anything, if that makes sense. So I think those are things I would say to journalists, but I would also say to them, don't listen to old journalists such as myself because in many ways, in many ways we're from another world. No, but that, that, that advice still applies. And, um, you know, I, I, I've spoken of this, of the same things because most, as you know, this Dan, we, we did not get into journalism to make money because we didn't think that was possible. <laughs> so you had to get into it for idealism, for this sense of the truth and fairness and accuracy and holding those in power accountable. Like that was the only reason you got in it because it definitely wasn't the money. <laughs> right? You expected to be poor. That was, that was kind of how it worked. And, uh, uh, I remember when I graduated from college and they said the average journalist made $19,000 a year, which mean, meant that I came out in debt in more ways than one. I was like, oh, that that's what I have to look forward to. All right. Before I get you out of here, a uh, little game I like to play with my guests is called This or That. I'm going to give you two choices, Dan Rather, and you have to select well, the boy, choice. I'll tell you, this, this will be the most dangerous thing I've done this week. I hope so. Because <laughs> the, the fate of America depends on your answers here. Um, <laughs> first question, grilled cheese or peanut butter and jelly? I saw that you made uh, grilled cheese uh, uh, with your grandson during the, the, the bulk of the lockdown. So which is it, grilled cheese or grilled peanut cheese. butter and jelly? <laughs> oh man and did you learn to cook anything during the pandemic because I, I think you alluded that that you might be having to you know figure out what's going on in the kitchen Not a little bit very much I, I i finally managed to heat up a can of soup but that's pretty much it <laughs> uh that whatever else he did uh, god did not put me on this earth to cook because i have no talent for cooking whatsoever I can heat soup, and in a tight, I can make a grilled cheese sandwich. That's about the extent of it. You can cover a war-torn area and a whole war, but (laughs) we all have our gifts, I guess. Okay, uh, In-N-Out or Five Guys? In-N-Out. Yeah, all right. That's the only acceptable answer. Ray Charles or Bill Withers? Uh, What would be a bigger news story... World War Three or dogs talking? And I ask you this before you answer, because as you know, as as a journalist, um, the late night discussions with other journalists are the best. And I promise you, me and my friends used to, you know, after more than a few adult beverages, used to argue about which would be a bigger headline, World War Three or dog talking. And let's just say that debate still hasn't been settled. So I figured I would ask the foremost journalistic authority what is the bigger well, story there a tough question a dog talking see i that's what i said i was like there have been wars 
I'm not belittling or demeaning or diminishing war. I mean, right? There have been wars. That's not exactly shocking that, the you know, there would be a World War Three. But a dog, if a dog talked to you, come on. That's a, that's a story of the century if, if dogs talk. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm glad you agree. I can't wait to play this for my journalism friends. Um, and finally, um, with 20, the 2020 presidential election insight, uh, Trump or Biden? Who's it going to be? I'm pausing because um, I don't know when this will play and things change. As of right now, I think Trump wins. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think that that I think that opinion will probably, you know, of course, I hope it's not necessarily true, but I don't think that's one of those opinions that's going to be, um, you know, necessarily out of style. I mean, as we get closer to well, this election. That, yeah, that we all learn, you know, overnight's a long time in politics. A week is forever and the election is not till November. That's the reason I pause. But I say as of this moment, I think is advantage Trump. Uh, as time goes along, that could change uh, rapidly or slowly, and I'll be most interested to see. Yeah, um, it could, but uh, I it, historically it tells us like it's really hard to unseat a, a, an incumbent, even one as dangerously incompetent as this one. It's hard to unseat one, so um, we'll see. I <laughs> I hope that isn't true, but you know, I've sort of when he got elected, I've said to myself then we better settle in for eight because this is probably going to be eight years well i will say this uh, jamel we're we're near the end here but uh however the presidential campaign goes are you expected to be really nasty really dirty it'll be nasty enough to gag a buzzard that is pretty nasty dan i'm gonna let you get on with your day thank you so much for coming on and um giving us some I think much needed perspective uh, historically and and what we're seeing now, because I think uh, I'm a big student of history. Any journalist should be, frankly, uh, it's such a blueprint to the future. Um, but thank you for sharing your experiences and your wisdom and your knowledge. And for those who aren't already, you need to follow Dan Rather on Twitter and on Facebook. I never would have guessed that following Dan Rather would be as lit as it is. But like <laughs> your account, uh, your account constantly reinforces to me that the stupid people have not won. So thank you for the brief sanity that you provide this nation as you've been doing for a real long time. Thank, so thank you very you. much, Jamel. It's been a pleasure being with you. I wish you good luck and Godspeed. All right. Dan's getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it. I'm bothered. One of my favorite lines in Pulp Fiction is from a man, Sam Jackson, a.k.a. Jules Winfield, who said, if my answers frighten you, then you should cease asking scary questions. So I spent the last week reading Isabel Wilkerson's new book, Cast, which in a word is magnificent. Isabel Wilkerson is one of my favorite authors, and I'm hoping someday she'll be a guest on this podcast. Uh, in the meantime, let me just pay tribute to this woman because she's amazing. She's one of the best scholars on race in the country. She was the first black woman to win a Pulitzer Prize. I could go on and on and on about her credentials, which are quite extraordinary. Her new book cast is just soul shattering because she is looking at the dynamics of race in this country through cast. Now, what is cast? Cast, it's these rigid, arbitrary social distinctions that we have. It's often the method of how we judge people based on socioeconomics, perceived racial hierarchy, and other totally baseless things. For example, a lot of times when I tell people I'm a sports journalist or that I work for The Atlantic, they look at me in amazement. And the reason they look at me that way is because of caste. A black woman from Detroit raised by a single mother isn't supposed to be the type of person who writes for a publication like The Atlantic or is in a profession like sports journalism or has her own television show. What makes Isabel Wilkerson's book brilliant is that she compares the caste system in America to that of India and Germany under the Nazi regime. The book moved me so much that I tweeted this. 
been reading Isabel Wilkerson's new book, Cass, and if you were of the opinion that the United States wasn't nearly as bad as Nazi Germany, how wrong you are. Can't encourage you enough to read this masterpiece. I'm thinking, I'm just giving a book review. But when I tell you the hate and the ignorance that rained down upon me, woo child, fuck it, everybody was bothered. Me, I was unbothered because you may not want to hear it, but what I said is, as the young kids say, facts. Let's deal with the first thing. I quickly found out that a lot of people don't understand something as simple as verb tense. I said that the United States was as bad as Nazi Germany, as in used to be, as in not currently. Even though y'all's president is playing footsie with fascism under the dinner table, shit, who am I kidding? He's kissing fascism in the mouth. I still was referring to America's racial past. Anyway, here's some fun facts you can repeat at parties. The Nazis studied Jim Crow laws and used that system as inspiration to persecute and exterminate millions of Jews. America had the one drop rule and interracial marriage was illegal in this country until the Supreme Court made it fully legal in 1967. Not 1867, not 1777, 1967. Another fun fact, Alabama became the last state in the country to overturn its ban on interracial marriage in 2000. In 1935, Nazi Germany passed the Nuremberg Laws, which legally disenfranchised Jews. And one of the key components was banning interracial marriage between Jews and Aryans. Why? Because the Nazis, just like in America, believed in something called eugenics, which is the study of racial purity. They believed in pure white blood, just as we believed in pure white blood, which is why we had dumb shit like the one drop rule, which is why we banned interracial marriage. We were a completely segregated society before the civil rights movement. We could not use the same drinking fountains. We could not use the same bathrooms. We couldn't sit in the same sections on the train and other public transportation. The Nazis wanted to emulate that. And they took things further by labeling Jewish people non-citizens in their own country. Hitler admired the United States because we were somehow able to maintain good standing with the rest of the world. Despite the fact we had developed a very advanced system of oppression, degradation and apartheid. But my tweet wasn't just about the Nazis admiring America for being the gold standard of racism through Jim Crow. If you compare the 400 years of torture that slaves endured with how the Nazis brutalized Jewish citizens, it's not apples and oranges. It's granny apples and Fuji apples. The Nazis conducted painful and often deadly experiments on Jewish prisoners. America conducted painful and deadly experiments on black people. The Tuskegee experiment where they injected black men with syphilis without their informed consent so they could study its effects. During slavery, medical experts conducted painful and torturous experiments on slaves, especially in the field of gynecology. Black women have a lot to do with why there has been such advancements in this area because they used to remove our ovaries and experiment with our genitalia. And they did so without using anesthesia. They also routinely tested whether slaves could bear more pain than white people. They blistered the skin of slaves to see if black skin was thicker than white skin. They amputated the limbs of slaves to see if they could tolerate more pain than white people. And for years, they used this science, and that's in air quotes, to support racist beliefs that our skulls were thicker and we could take more punishment. And there is still an undercurrent of that in the medical field today. As pointed out by Isabel Wilkerson in Nazi Germany, it often wasn't the Germans who put Jewish bodies in the incinerator. It was other Jews who the Nazis would promote, give them a few more threads of clothing, little more food, just as during slavery, they had black overseers who whipped, tortured and beat slaves. And they also were given a little bit more than the other slaves. The only difference between us and how the Jews were persecuted is the end result. The Nazis wanted to wipe Jews completely out. America, unfortunately, needed us to continue to fuel the economy that made us into a superpower. The real problem here and why I received so much backlash is because America hasn't told the truth about our racist past. We were built on a lie. And as my man Slim Charles says in The Wire, we gonna fight on that lie no matter what. 
We treat our history of racism as if it were merely an inconvenient chapter in our otherwise stellar history. When the truth is, racism is the foundation of who we are and who we have always been. But the difference between us and Germany is this. The Germans paid reparations. They apologize for their cruelty. When you go to Germany, you know what you don't see? Statues of Nazi leaders everywhere. But not here. There are 1,800 Confederate monuments in the United States. People have weddings and other events on slave plantations, even though on that very land, black folks were raped, murdered, and tortured. The late great John Lewis had his head cracked open while peacefully marching on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. You know who Edmund Pettus was? Edmund Pettus was a racist and the leader of the Alabama Ku Klux Klan. In America, see, we memorialize our racism. We treat it with respect and reverence. So to sum all of this up, to all the folks that came after me after that tweet, I said what the fuck I said. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent and Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Erica Clark and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill.